Hello, and welcome to another episode of TPI's podcast, To Think Minimum. I'm Chris McGurns, TPI Director of Communications. To date on this podcast, we have focused on topics ranging from the definition of broadband to infrastructure broadly and what it means for telecommunications, the Universal Service Fund, and rural broadband access. Today, we will continue to tackle the meta issues in tech policy and tech politics with a conversation on the incentive auctions. The last incentive auction held in March 30th, 2017, yielded 19.8 excuse me billion dollars in revenue including 10.05 billion dollars for winning broadcast bidders and more than seven billion dollars for the united states treasury now for those of us not familiar with the technical side of uh, this policy um, when it comes to incentive auctions and spectrum in general uh, these terms may be new and it might be staggering that they've raised so much money but that's why we are joined by scott walston who is President and Senior Fellow of TPI, and Sarah O, oh, Fellow at TPI, to delve into topics, all things incentive auctions today. I'll let them take it away. Uh, so Scott, I know that you did some work um, on researching the incentive auctions and discussing alternatives to running the incentive auction, but also interpreting results from it. Um, I recently read a blog post um, that TPI published comparing auctions and auction revenues from the last few Spectrum auctions. Um, the AWS 3 Spectrum auction yielded $41 billion in revenues, which was kind of an outlier, um, with a high megahertz per pop number at over $2 per megahertz pop. In comparison, the incentive auction from um, spring to 2017 yielded uh, revenues of 19 billion, which was you know, less than half of the AWS 3 auction, but um, also with lower megahertz per pop averages at um, around $1.30 per megahertz per pop for top 40 uh, markets. Do these numbers mean that the incentive auction of the 600 megahertz band wasn't as successful as the AWS 3 auction? Did it meet expectations? Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. So the short answer to your question is that the auction was a success. Um, it did not meet many expectations, um, but those expectations were unrealistic because they were based on the previous AW, on the AWS 3 auction, which was which yielded numbers like we'd never seen before. If you look at expectations prior to that auction, um, then the incentive auction pretty much met them. Uh, so I think it, you know, the incentive auction did what it was supposed to do, and the FCC deserves a lot of credit for it. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of things we can fix, and there's still a debate about whether it's the right thing to do. But let's back up even further. Um, and let's let's sort of slowly work backwards. So first, uh, you, when you t gave those prices, you said that they were in terms of megahertz pops, price per megahertz pops. We need to explain what that is. So that's the um, the price that uh, the the the, you know, the dollars that was paid for, for a given license. It's the dollars that was paid times the bandwidth um, of the license divided by the population covered by the geographic footprint. And so that's that's the standard way of normalizing prices of spectrum so that we can compare them. Uh, now. We didn't always used to use auctions at all. Um, starting in the third 1930s and probably earlier before the FCC, uh, spectrum was allocated by what we called beauty contests, and they there would be spectrum available, and um, the FCC would then review arguments for what it should be used for and who should get it. 
And so they would decide that, um, you know, this, in the, let's say the 600 megahertz band of spectrum should be used for a television broadcast. Uh, and then anybody could, could come in and make a case for why they were the ones that deserved it. Uh, and then they had spectrum for all kinds of things, for very specific cases, for TV, for radio, for taxi, taxi drivers, uh, for taxi cab companies, and for all, all kinds of things. And the problem with that was that, first of all, we didn't know whether that was really the best use, um, because everybody's going to come in and argue that what they do is the best use. And people still do that, actually. You know, if somebody's allocated spectrum today, you will always hear them forever say that they are the ones that need that spectrum. Um, and then, the, so we don't know whether it was initially allocated properly. And then, because it was um, mandated for that use, it was hard for it to switch to something else when, um, when that was no longer the most valuable uh, use of the spectrum. So they, um, they tried to uh, get rid of the problem of the beauty contest of everyone trying to convince them it was better by having it be a lottery system and relying on the secondary market to, um, to, to, to move that spectrum to its highest value use. And the problem with that was that the transaction costs, um, although that it, it led to people earning windfalls and nobody likes windfalls. Economists don't care about windfalls because those aren't real economic effects. They're just transfers of money. And so if the secondary market moved the spectrum to its highest value use and somebody made a fortune on it, well, that was lucky for that person. And because it was a, a belonged to the government, let's say it was publicly owned beforehand, arguably that money should have gone to the government, but it didn't affect the economic output of that. So eventually, um, thanks to people like Evan Quirrell, an economist at the FCC who had pushed for auctions and done research on it for a long time, and Reed Hunt, who was chairman of the FCC at the time and knew to listen to his staff, um, we ended up bringing in uh, auctions. And the idea was that we could figure out where it would the spectrum would had made the most sense, who had the highest value used for it, for who was willing to pay the most for it. And we auctioned it off just like um, you know we would auction off anything else or, or issue a request for proposals and give it to the, uh, well, in this case, uh, to the highest, you know, to whoever was willing to pay the most. And the, that's called a forward auction, where you be a standard auction, what people think of, you keep bidding higher and higher prices until no one is willing to pay anymore. Um, and then the incentive auction was a way to simultaneously free up spectrum that was stuck in this antiquated um, use case uh, and then turn around and auction it off. So in this case, it was a way to get spectrum from the broadcasters by seeing how much they would have to be paid to give up their license rather than just demanding that they give it up and allowing uh, broadcasters to opt in if they wanted to, whoever owned TV stations. Uh, so they could get a payout and then they would repack the existing stations to create a nice clean block of spectrum and turn around and, and auction that off and that was the um that was the incentive auction and i think i forgot your question after all that yeah well <laughs> thanks for the history on spectrum and just that when sounded very sarcastic <laughs> <laughs> when still a lot of good information though. yeah uh when, when you were kind of recounting the history of Spectrum, I just keep wondering, well, why, why is it so political? Why does, it, it sounds simple when you say, oh, um, the FCC had held an incentive auction, but getting to auctions took a long time, a lot of politics, a lot of congressional involvement, a lot of persuasion, 
um, a lot of equity arguments. Um, it's not a simple process, and you would think that something as simple as, I mean, as simple, or something um, like a resource like Spectrum could be moved around with market mechanisms. So why why is Congress so involved? The incentive auction was only authorized by the Middle Class Tax um, Act in 2012, um, 10 years after a report from the FCC recommending this incentive auction by Evan Quirrell. And well, you're, you're asking a really interesting question, the why Spectrum is so political. Um, I mean, one reason is that it's valuable, but lots of things are valuable, and they're not, and, and they're not political. Um, but it, it partly, it goes back to, um, I think a few things. One is that it was allocated to certain uses. So lots of groups feel like they have the right to particular bands of spectrum, and they don't want to give it up. Um, and that also includes not just, like we were talking about the TV broadcasters, but the government. Um, the Defense Department is the largest single holder of spectrum and arguably doesn't use it very efficiently, and we'd like to move more of it for private and civil use, uh, so private, civil, and commercial use. Um, and, you know, they don't want to give it up. Nobody wants to give up something that they feel belongs to them. And so it's, it, you know, we, we have to figure out ways of doing that that everyone agrees with, um, or not everyone, and that's enough people agree with. And so that creates constant arguments. And then, you know, there are uh, groups that would much rather fight about it in a regulatory setting than have to pay for it. Um, so and be a squeaky wheel, can I interject here? So sometimes I wonder the unlicensed spectrum crowd, they are just repeating the same mistakes that led to the broadcasters having spectrum and making it political. If unlicensed um, bands are just regulated by rules that go through the FCC, what happens when we need to clear devices off of unlicensed? It has to go through this whole political process again. So even though in the short term it sounds like, oh, having um, unlicensed rules is the fastest way to um, have new uses enter the spectrum quickly, um, in, in a bigger picture, I feel like licenses that are um, able to move around in the market are actually better for innovation. Well, yeah, I mean, so first, since we don't have a, a somebody here who's specifically pro unlicensed, uh, we I don't want to we don't want to criticize them unfairly or put words in anyone's mouth, even though it's fun. Um, uh, so you know, unlicensed is important, and licensed is important. But you're but you're, but you're raising the point that um, when a band of spectrum is allocated for a particular use, it becomes very very difficult to to change it. Now. On license is a little bit different from just specifying a use because it can be any use as long as it um, meets certain rules regarding interference and accepting interference and, and so on. Um, and so it's been, you know, unlicensed has been important for innovation when we use Wi-Fi all the time. But we did see it when there was a new new technology that wanted to use unlicensed, LTEU. It caused a huge fight. Uh, the Wi-Fi proponents didn't like it. And, um, you know, then there were lots of technical arguments over what, you know, did it cause interference and, and, how, and, and how much. On the one hand, the rule is very clear. If it caused interference, it doesn't matter. It's not supposed to matter. Anybody can use it. Um, but there was a huge installed base of people who used Wi-Fi, and so it became its own constituency. And, and, and so broadly speaking, that, that is a problem. I mean, one of the problems that we're, that we're working on, that we're faced with now, is that car um, automobiles were 
given spectrum in the 5.9 gigahertz band. And now they are fighting tooth and nail to make sure they keep that spectrum. It doesn't matter whether they're actually going to use it. They say they need it for safety reasons. Um, and so, you know, here's another industry that was given access to what now it considers its spectrum and doesn't want to give it up. And that's why we try not to give spectrum to groups because it becomes a constituency that doesn't want to give it up because there is no easy way to compensate. Yeah, so why, why isn't Spectrum like any other property? What, what, you know, what, what makes Spectrum so political? Um, and Scott, you talked a little bit about that. The initial allocations, there's a lot of history involved too, like back in the Hoover administration where the federal government um, was organizing chaos on the airwaves. There is a big increase in the number of radio stations that were broadcasting and then um, they were asking the federal government to put some order um, on the entry because there was just too much interference. Um, so that's an example of where the federal government served as like a arbiter or like a moderator well, in the kind market. Of. I mean, on the one hand, it was important for dealing with the interference. On the other hand, there were a group of incumbents looking to be protected from entry. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's like an area where it's uniquely, um, and I guess Tom Hazlett says this in his book too, where it's uniquely convenient to come up with a technology reason for obstruction <laughs> or a technology reason for a carve-out from the regulator or from Congress. We'll, we'll have Tom as a, as a guest on the, on the podcast. <laughs> One of the, though, I thought the most insightful things from his book, um, The Political Spectrum, is that uh, wherever, he, he pointed out that wherever he went, the objection to um, making spectrum available for some other use, or you know, more freely available, were all the objections were always technical, um, and so you know, sort of a rule of thumb: when somebody makes a technical argument against uh, against allowing a use, you can bet mm -hmm. that they're just protecting an incumbent, mm -hmm. um, and and that's what the and that's the reason. Mm -hmm. So it's always a political economic reason. The technical stuff is um, just. Uh, isn't the real issue. I mean, I'm sure that's exaggerating <laughs> because there yeah. are technical issues. But. but I think Ronald Coase also, I mean, he, he has such good economic instincts, but he gravitated towards studying Spectrum and the FCC, noticing that um, there's just so much economics and incentives in the whole movement of licenses and rights on Spectrum far more than technical constraints. Yeah, I mean, he realized that the beauty contest way of doing, of allocating spectrum was silly and, and he, you know, he wanted a system of, of auctions essentially. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> he was laughed at originally. So, I mean, you talk about some of the other ways spectrum was allocated, the beauty contest and the lottery. Um, and then moving to an auction system where it goes to the highest bidder, doesn't that block out small innovative companies if they wanted to get Spectrum? Well, um, building out a wireless network is hugely capital intensive. Um, so a small, the idea that a small company is going to build its own infrastructure is not especially realistic. Uh, the FCC has tried to give small company um, credits in the, in the auctions, but mostly you know, that just creates uh, shell companies um, and all kinds of ways of gaming the system. There's no evidence that it's done 
any good. Plus, you know, when you innovative companies, we want innovative uses on those wireless networks. Uh -huh. I mean, we also want the wireless networks themselves to be innovative. Um, but you know, set asides in the infrastructure for small businesses um, is you know is generally not a good not a good way to go. So when we're talking about the auctions themselves, we're really talking about a handful of companies that everyone knows about because they pay their monthly wireless, Wi-Fi, cellular bill to them. Are those pretty much the players when we're talking about these spectrum auctions? Well, usually, but not always. I mean, there are, in any given auction, you'll find companies that you probably haven't heard of. And then there are companies that you've heard of that are in the auctions, surprisingly in the auctions. Um, in the AWS 3 auction, um, Dish was in it. And obviously, it's a satellite company. They, spectrum is important to them. Um, but their bidding behavior caused uh, the prices to go, you know, much higher, and so you know made the the usual guys, AT and T, Verizon, and so on, pay a lot more for that spectrum than they would have um, otherwise. Uh, sometimes you know, Comcast has been in the in the auctions. Uh, Google was in an auction. Uh, so it's um, there there there's a there are a good number of companies that participate. Although um, the companies with the with the largest collections of spectrum are of course the the biggest uh, wireless carriers. When you talk about companies like Dish and Comcast, Google being in them, are they basically doing pulling a Bart Simpson, where they're going in and they're trying to raise the price just to add, you know, cause a little bit of pain for their competitors? Or what was their justification behind it? Well, it's a pretty risky strategy because you might end up winning and then you owe billions of dollars. Um, you know, that said, uh, Charlie Ergen is um, hard to figure out, and, uh, and 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 I say that not as criticism because he's made billions of dollars by being that way. So he knows what he's doing, um, even if even if we don't. Um, Dish bid on uh, 600 megahertz spectrum. I think they were one of the top were they? bidders, yeah. Um, and, uh, but you know, sometimes like uh, with Comcast, they had been uh, at one time, um, some years ago, as part of there was a cable, a, a, a consortium of cable companies that bid for Spectrum, thinking that that would be part of their wireless strategy, and that they might launch their own um, network. It didn't. It didn't pan out, and they sold that Spectrum to Verizon, I believe. Um, most of it, I think, not all of it went to Verizon. Um, but so you know, they they participated in the auction because they thought they were going to need that Spectrum as an input into a service, and it turned out they they didn't. They went a different way. They started and went down the Wi-Fi route. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was browsing through the winners of the incentive auction, and there are a lot of, I guess, private equity groups that are, you know, buying up smaller chunks of the spectrum. Um, I'm not sure what they do with it. Do they resell it, or um, I, I don't know. Um, but there are a lot more bidders than I would expect. It's way more than f the top four. Uh, we know that more we could keep moving. We should keep moving more spectrum into the market because the price for it is positive, um, and so we know it has value. Uh, but if it were be, if there were you know, increasing demand, you would expect to see spectrum prices continuously increasing. And that's not the case. Um, sometimes it increases, sometimes it decreases. It's different by different bands. Um, and the reason for that is that wireless demand, demand for wireless services is growing by leaps and bounds. We know that. But like Sarah said, uh, spectrum is one input, and the other inputs are basically technology. And technology improves. And so we, get to, we can use we use spectrum more and more efficiently all the time. And so as wireless demand increases, uh, if, you're, if you're running a network, you have choices on how to expand. You can get more spectrum, 
or you can improve the technology you're using. You can split cells, um, you can do all kinds of things. And so at any given moment, you're gonna make a trade-off between investing in technology or, or infrastructure and getting more spectrum. And, um, and so the how much the, the value of the spectrum is gonna depend not just on demand for wireless services, but on how quickly um, and, and the, the price of uh, the cost of new technology and, and infrastructure too. Yeah, one thing that I find interesting um, is the value of unencumbered spectrum or even paired spectrum is far greater than... Tell, tell people what, what paired and unpaired means. Right, so paired spectrum is when, um, when you can get two channels that are kind of paired together, an uplink and a downlink, whereas unpaired spectrum is a band that is just by itself. Um, and I believe uh, paired spectrum is more valuable on the market because there's more demand. And paired spectrum is more valuable because um, it's a, it uses a technology that's much more common. Right, and because there are subscribers on the other end of the network. Um, so this is an area where the market kind of pushes or drives the value of spectrum. Um, it doesn't have real uh, value on its own, like anything really. It's, it's the price that um, is set when the market demands it. Another thing about unencumbered spectrum versus encumbered spectrum, there's a debate on whether spectrum should be shared or not um, with multiple users or on a primary or secondary basis. But I believe studies have shown that unencumbered spectrum, at least for mobile carriers, is valued more highly. So where you are kind of the primary user and you don't have to worry about interference or sharing. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, there, there are different kinds of encumbrances, though, of course. I mean, some, uh, some can make the spectrum unusable until you clear it. Uh, and then, of course, it's less valuable because it's going to cost you to clear the spectrum and it'll take time before you can start earning, you know, earning, earning money on it. That was one of the um, justifications for doing the incentive auction that by doing the reverse auction first, it could, and then repacking the remaining stations, um, the FCC could then auction off clear and open spectrum blocks of spectrum um, that that were unencumbered. Uh, so yeah, so you know, the harder it is to use your spectrum, the less valuable it's going to be. Uh, all else equal. So when we're talking about the beachfront property spectrum, do we have any idea and estimates on how much that would cost on the in the auction market? Well, we can go back. You can go back and look at the data, and, and every auction has been different. Um, I mean, generally speaking, until now, lower frequency spectrum, meaning 600, 700 megahertz spectrum, is more valuable than um, spectrum higher up, like uh, 1.9, 2.5 uh, spectrum. Now, there is, um, you know, we, we hear a lot about 5G these days, and that will use higher frequency spectrum. Um, now, we don't know yet um, how 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 we'll value that. I don't think we've seen an auction for it yet. Um, so you know it, that could turn out to be all hype, and it'll turn out that that high frequency spectrum is much less valuable in a in a normalized sense than the lower megahertz spectrum, and it'll be the same trend as always. Or you know maybe the demand for densification, which is what five G will be about. Uh, we you know adding more capacity to where there's already coverage. Um, maybe they'll turn out to be very high demand for that, and uh, and and we'll see uh, the demand for the spectrum outstrip the you know, the, the uh, infrastructure, and then and we'll see higher prices for it. But we don't have evidence on that yet. 
Um, so going back to spectrum alternatives, alternatives to incentive auctions. So incentive auctions are, um, I would say, a great innovation for the FCC um, to be more market oriented. Um, same thing with reverse auctions and the Universal Service Fund. But there are alternative ways of reallocating resources while also coming to compromise. Um, should we talk a little bit about alternatives to incentive auctions? So um, basically, the basic problem is reallocating existing incumbent users without giving them a windfall, which some people are concerned about. Um, but also moving spectrum to higher valued uses and liberalizing the rules. So like we said before, turning a license that's only for broadcast TV use into a general purpose license um, isn't as simple as just the FCC saying so. I, I wish it would be, actually. Well, it, it can be as simple as that. The question is, <laughs> is, is whether then um, the transaction cost would be too high to then for anybody to reassemble that into, into useful spectrum. And that's kind of an ongoing debate. And Ronald Coase would probably say it, it's fine, right? I don't know. What I think he would say that if there are no transaction costs, um, then it's fine. But he would also say that it's the transaction costs that have shaped the market the way it is. Uh, and so the amount of spectrum that you need as a distributor um, or as an infrastructure company does depend on what you want to what you want to do with it. Um, you need a lot more spectrum to deliver video than you do for some Internet of Things activities. Like often an Internet of Things thing just needs to let you know that something's there, right? And that's just a ping, a little, little, you know, sending a, a, a bit down a, down a pipe or, or through the airwaves. And that doesn't take much spectrum at all. Um, if you want to watch your house on, um, you know, HD video 24 hours a day, uh, that's going to take a lot of spectrum. A lot of sorry, it's gonna it's gonna sorry, I shouldn't put it that way. It's gonna take a lot of bandwidth, and however that bandwidth is provided, whether it's by uh, wireless services, which will then take take a lot of infrastructure and bandwidth, um, or wired connections that will require sufficient bandwidth, um, it's it's gonna so it depends a lot on the on the use. Now that we're talking about um, spectrum more generally, maybe we can wade into the unlicensed license debate. So part of this conversation is that a lot of uh, br uh, data is being offloaded through Wi-Fi, and Wi-Fi is um, pretty much a connection to a wired um, cable or, I guess, cable subscription. So would you say Wi-Fi is kind of an extension of wired? <laughs> is it really a spectrum? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people say that all spectrum is an extension of wired um, because most backhaul um, to take take the, uh, to to finally take the connection back to a server somewhere, um, there's a wire somewhere. You're, it's always bringing it back to a cable somewhere, uh, and Wi-Fi is uh, it, it's a shorter distance to the backhaul. Definitely, mm -hmm. um, maybe even backhaul isn't the right word for Wi-Fi because it's taking it to your own. If it's at your home, it's your home wired connection or your work wired connection, and so on. But people um, just in general use are often confused um, about what wireless means because um, it's wireless just means wireless. All people care about is, is whether they can carry their device around and they don't care whether it's connecting to Wi-Fi or cellular or a 600 megahertz or 1.9 megahertz except for maybe us who like to 
just know and, and um, <laughs> I have very strange preferences. So maybe the term mobility too. I know that mobility, the term, can often refer to the wireless network, um, but Wi-Fi is part of your home connection. Um, so there is kind of a debate on, well, do we need more unlicensed spectrum for Wi-Fi uses or do we need more licensed spectrum for mobility um, because um, national networks need to organize their communications on unencumbered licensed bands. Um, yeah, what do you think about unlicensed and licensed in, in that light? Well, they're, they're both obviously important, but Part of the problem with the debate is when people say we need more unlicensed, it's very hard to compare it to licensed because whenever anything is free, you always need more of it. People love to consume things that have a price of zero. And so you'll see uh, usage on it go uh, increase quickly. Um, on the one hand, that's been good for Wi-Fi too, right? Because uh, we've seen lots of new devices come on. Um, and, 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 and we should probably, rather than just saying Wi-Fi, say unlicensed in general, because there are other technologies. There's LTEU, which is LTE, the U is standing for unlicensed, which has been had a big debate with Wi-Fi. Um, there's Z-Wave technology for in in your house. Our our um, the lock on our front door communicates with a device that can then tell me whether the door is locked or not on my phone. I'm not sure why I need that, but I like it. Um, and uh, so, it, it, but so it, it's it's hard to it. it becomes just a regulatory debate um, without a lot of, of information to help inform whether you know an additional megahertz of spectrum should be licensed or unlicensed because it's hard to it's hard to compare what the, the marginal the value of the marginal megahertz is in one versus the other. Yeah, in economics papers, I know that this is an active area of research, and there are only a handful of papers I would say that purport to measure, um, first of all, economic growth that comes from one or the other, unlicensed or licensed spectrum, um, or even kind of valuing the output from unlicensed or licensed. And don't you think these are important quantitative facts to know um, before going through the policy debate? Yeah, absolutely. But it's, uh, you know, a, a lot of the these papers, though, um, you know, you, you can't, I don't believe papers that put uh, the economy on the left-hand side. You just cannot measure the effects of, uh, of one thing to the entire economy. Um, so, you know, in general, if, if, you, if you see, when you see, when you see that something added X billion dollars to the economy, it, you know, it's probably a position paper. Um, and it's, it's hard to know exactly what the outcome is that you want to measure and, and, how, and how to measure it. Uh, so it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a tough it's a tough debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think right now, at least in the spectrum debate, it it seems like th well maybe it's always been kind of evenly matched between the licensed and unlicensed crowds. Um, I I mean I personally think licensed liberal licenses that can move around from. Um, one innovative company to another makes more sense than unlicensed bands that require the FCC to change the rules. Um, but I mean, other people have different opinions. Well, and we've also seen that you know any incumbent incumbents act like incumbents, and Wi-Fi, um, the Wi-Fi crowd was really upset about LTEU, um, which was another unlicensed band. The rules are very clear. 
uh, unlicensed has to accept interference from any other uh, any other service in that band, but they didn't want it. Uh, so you know, unlicensed uh, wasn't they didn't really like the unlicensed aspect of it when it came to competition. Uh, so you know, they, when the, one of the problems with unlicensed is that uh, you'll always see fights at the regulator rather than in the market. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, that's one reason why, that's one point in favor of, of license. It also depends on the uses. Um, you know, utilities, for example, don't want to use unlicensed spectrum because they're worried about security and they want to have more control over the network and the, and the airwaves that they're, that they're using. So in the few minutes we have left, what are the one or two key takeaways that you want people who might not be as familiar with Spectrum and incentive au auctions to know? I think uh, one key takeaway is that the FCC ran a really complicated auction, a uh, reverse auction and a forward auction. And, um, you know, that was, that's, that's a big accomplishment. And people who think that the government is always incompetent, you know, should take a look at that because, you know, it involved, it involved machine learning, um, it involved sophisticated uh, auction design that hadn't been done before, uh, and 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 you know and that's going to have implications for our future things like universal service and other you know possibilities of of, of of getting back spectrum. The other thing though is that um, even though it was successful and admirable, we still don't know if that was the best way to go about it because mm -hmm. there are, there are, there are other ways we might have tried to um, yeah. you know repurpose spectrum and. Uh, you know, I think we still don't have the empirical answer to what is the best way to do that. Yeah, in my mind, I was thinking, well, is that a feature or a bug that the yeah. incentive auction was so complicated? I mean, part exactly. of it is a little bit of smoke and mirrors, like we're going to do this fair auction with market prices and everyone will, will be happy. But that's there's a lot of political calculus involved. Um, in making it complicated, if it's too straightforward, if if the I mean the FCC could just say these broadcast licenses will now be liberal licenses, and you, broadcast stations you can now use the spectrum or sell it in one order, and you wouldn't need all of that. Um. Right. Well, I mean the, the FCC's <laughs> counter to that is that the transaction costs are too high for any given company to buy up uh, all these disparate TV networks and try to put together a coherent footprint in a similar um, band, but that is the question. Um, you know, did, did we need this complicated auction? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we really don't know the answer to that. We don't know. <laughs> no, well, we can leave it right there. We don't know the answer, but we have given a lot of good background and advice on how to move forward. We hope you enjoyed this episode of To Think Minimum and hope you join us again next week when we talk about artificial intelligence and IoT in uh, preparation for our big conference on February 22nd. See you next time. Bye. Bye.